I've been loving this iPad for photo editing, though. I it's know, great. I know you use yours for that, too. And, like, the other day, I was taking pictures at that uh, Christmas Eve service mm-hmm. and needed to deliver a few, you know, short notice to, for them to post that day. And it was really nice. I didn't take my laptop with me. Oh, yeah. You just plug it in, drop them in, boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom, done. Yeah. I brought a, a USB compact ex- uh, CF Express reader for the uh, XH2S. Mm-hmm. And I planned on using an SD reader on the XT30, but I couldn't get the battery door open because of the peak design uh, clip. Oh, interesting. And so I just plugged that one in with USB. But yeah, it's super easy to import stuff. And they've finally, I mean, I know it's been this way for a while, but when I used Lightroom Mobile in the past, you had to import your pictures to Lightroom before you could edit them. And they've changed that now. So like on the iPad Lightroom, you can just... Like it just sees your photo library and you can just edit stuff from your photo library without having to import it first, which is really cool. Yeah, that like you don't have to actually import it into Lightroom. You can just see the photos on your device and edit them. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, that was really nice for me because I think I'm probably going to end up doing most of this editing on my computer just because it's a bigger screen. I'm more used to it and all that. And so it's like I don't really... Like, I don't want to, like, set up this whole thing on the, the iPad to do it. And so I just wanted to be able to, like, grab a couple of those pictures and edit them. It's really nice and easy. That's good. Yeah. I I learned that. So I I connect my XH2S to my iPad frequently with just the USB-C cable mm-hmm. to pull in the pictures rather than having to pull out my CF Express reader. Do you feel like that's as fast as the CF Express reader? I don't think it matters. Yeah. If I'm just, you know somewhere and I only have my iPad I'm pulling pictures off it's like if it's twice as long it's still less than 10 minutes it's like instead of 30 seconds it's a minute kind of thing Okay, but I have learned that you have to have the right cable with me because some USB-C cables just don't they just don't communicate between the the camera and the iPad that is one of the most frustrating things about USB-C is that you have this one connector Mm -hmm. that has like 10 different types of cables that do different things and you got to have the right one. And I'm like pretty – like the the one that comes with the iPad is USB 2 and it's a charge cable. Yeah. And that one works. And then I have like a USB 3.1 really long charge cable. That one – no, it's not Thunderbolt. But then I have this anchor that I know I've used for data before. So it is a data cable. And it's a charge cable, but it doesn't work for transferring photos, and I don't know why. That's annoying. Like, I have no idea why. I just want there to be like a color coding or some little symbol or something. Like if it's a charge-only cable, I want to be able to know that by looking at the cable. The whole thing's an absolute mess. It really is. But why, there was something recently that I shot where I think it was just a lot of Christmas pictures, and I didn't want – no, it was those dog portraits that I took. <laughs> I, was, I, I only wanted to keep the – the non-blurry ones and not get everything like sucked into my Lightroom and into my photo backup workflow. Sure. And so I, on the iPad, I turned off sync, imported the photos, cleared them, like going through and flagging, you know, like, dislike, and then I deleted all the dislikes and then I turned on sync. And that worked fairly effectively to keep the photo library clean, but still use Lightroom for the filtering features. Nice. That's cool. When you do get around to working on those photo edits, the... There are still features in Lightroom Normal, not Lightroom Classic, that are on the computer that aren't on the iPad. Mm. Specifically, the they added these like AI denoising and upresing features. Oh, interesting! That are actually really good for those Fuji files. Yeah, and I'll if there's check that out. if there's a picture that you really like that you want it to, you just want to upres it so that there's more detail. The upres is super good. And if you have like a really high ISO image that you want to denoise, or it's like you can't quite 
get it sharp how you want it. The one of the problems with like those, as you know, with those X-Trans files in Lightroom is that when you start cranking the sharpness, it like sharpens the noise almost. Like yeah, it just takes yeah. all the grain and the detail and just sharpens everything. Whenever you do the DNG conversion and the AI noise reduction, even if you use just like a little bit, once it converts it to a DNG, the sharpening works way better. Oh, interesting. And so it's just, it's like a good to know. Like if you're on a computer and you're using Lightroom regular and you're working with X Trans photos and you want to like you have like ISO sixty four hundred image, mm-hmm. like do a little bit of the AI denoising and then you can bump the sharpness a little bit and you can it's it's incredible as far as the difference between what you were working with before and what you're working with after in that DNG. Okay. I'll have to give that a try. My other tip is that if you're going to sharpen your photos for the because I know you don't edit a lot of a lot of raw photos with uh, Fujifilm because JPEGs are so good. But let it do sharpening on export for your JPEGs. Like take your sharpness down to zero. Mm-hmm. And then on the export screen, you can select to sharpen on export for screens. And it will do the sharpening in the, for the JPEG on export. And that is a different function than whenever you're doing it. It has a preview for the raw in Lightroom. Interesting. And that works better, you think? Yeah, it, I think it does. Oh. Huh. So, I wonder why that's different, and I wonder why, like, like why do you have to know these weird little tips? You know, it's because Fujifilm is not popular enough for all those Adobe cats, and they just haven't figured out how to deal with those RAF files and yeah. extrans in the correct way. I guess. Sure is a shame that uh, Capture One's ending their free version. That's going to be a bummer for people that use that. Yeah, I if Capture One had a equivalent set of features and was as easy to use for me as Lightroom, I would I would use that instead, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like there's not a really a good library feature. That's the whole reason I'm sticking with Lightroom is because you, I can manage my photo library in Lightroom. Yeah. Yeah. Woof. I mean, doing stuff like that is a big ask for any company because the, li- the library stuff also means they have like a cloud sync and all that. And there's a big, those are big features that require a lot of infrastructure and stuff. So it's not surprising they don't have it. Yeah. But they yeah. are dis- they're discontinuing the Capture One Express mm-hmm. stuff. I assumed that meant the Fuji one too. Yes. But you can still get a raw converter from mm-hmm. them for free. Uh, and so they're letting you have that. If you're a Fuji person, you can still go to Capture One and get like the raw converter thing. Okay. And that will work and that won't cost you anything. But if you want to use actual Capture One, you got to pay yeah. for it. But. They were there feature locking for a long time anyway. And if you're doing a lot of photo editing, it's kind of, yeah. yeah, might as well just use, use the paid version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shame. Shame. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a segue. We're still, we're still like pre-show here. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Oh boy. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. I was on threads yesterday, and in between all of the posts about people telling me that I can long press things to do extra whatevers. Like in threads? Yeah, in threads, they're like, if you long press the share button, it opens up a different share sheet. And that was every post (laughs) all day yesterday. Like it, it was ridiculous. It's kind of bad if you have a, a platform and people are only talking about like how to use the platform in ways you don't know about. Kind of like us talking about Lightroom and its various sharpening features. <laughs> <laughs> like, nope. like, shouldn't they make these things self-evident so that you don't need to like share this 
arcane knowledge with everybody. I don't know. If it's, that's, I don't think they probably they probably haven't thought of that. That's a really good idea. <laughs> let's write let's write a letter. We should. <laughs> anyway, between all those posts, uh, someone was like, "Check out this bad boy, Merry Christmas to me," kind of thing, and it was a it was a Fuji film. Natura, Natura, Natura. I can't. I can only read this word. Nature with an A. Classica. And I was like, "This look, this sounds like an espresso machine." But what is it actually? Well, it's, it's obviously a film camera, Daniel. Uh. <laughs> I don't even know why you have to ask anymore. <laughs> it could have been a film rather than a film. Camera. It is a film that you can get. Uh, you can get Fujifilm Natura sixteen hundred, which is a sixteen hundred ISO film, mm. which was probably what people used in these cameras. That that would make sense. And so I haven't gone I haven't gone like full Lucas on this yet, but it's probably going to happen. And I'm starting to think that maybe this is my next film camera. Oh. Maybe, we'll see. So I'm there's there's a bunch of them because there, there's like the Natura Nature Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm saying it so wrong. Natura The Natura Natura. Jeez. Oh, You're right, it's just lean in lean into the the southern accent on that one then it'll, it'll be fine. So I'm looking at the Natura, and there's the, there's the Classica, and there's the NS and the S, and there's a bunch of different variations. Mm-hmm. But what's super cool about this camera is that they have a really like good, highly sensitive photometer on it. Okay. And the whole point of it was to take naturally lit photos in the dork. Interesting. So it's got... A, I mean, you said ISO sixteen hundred, yeah, so which it is, is kind of fast, but not super fast. So it is but, a it is a point and shoot, mm-hmm. and it will exp, it will auto expose up to sixteen hundred ISO film, which is pretty dark. Mm-hmm. And then also some of these one the ones there's one specifically that has a thirty five millimeter one point nine lens on it. Oh, so that's pretty uh, pretty fast. Yeah, that's pretty fast. That one, and I don't know if the the Classica will do it. The Classica has a zoom lens. It's a it's a 28 or a 35 that then jumps to uh, like a 58 or something. So it's the same, like we talked about this on like a lot of different film cameras in that circa year where it was a prime lens that has two focal lengths Mm -hmm. and it will zoom, but it'll only zoom to the second one and it'll be like 28 and 58 or 35 and 70 or something like that. And then it'll double the aperture. This is the same thing. It's 2.8 to 5.6 and it's got two, two focal lengths. So that was the one that I was looking at on threads. But as I dove into this, the whole point of it was that Whenever if you put in ISO sixteen hundred film into the camera, then it's like, cool, we're doing this. And it will you can set it to automatically expose up two stops. So it'll it'll push the film for you up to two stops. So that's thirty two sixty four hundred if you want it. And then also it will disable the flash. Interesting. And so like you go into Natura mode mm-hmm. and your flash turns off and you push two stops and you put 1600 ISO film and you can take low light photos with your auto, your point and shoot film camera that are all naturally lit so you can get these cool like whatever lighting effects and the auto exposure still works because it's a point and shoot and it has a really good uh, photo sensor in it. Sounds like it'd be pretty good for taking pictures indoors. Yeah. Know, parties or something like that. So it's like, it's like the whole thing with this. Mm-hmm. Natural light. Pretty cool. And if you could still buy Natura, whatever, 1600 film, which they discontinued, then it would be perfect for this. Yeah. I imagine with stuff like that, since it has a light meter and, and all that, I imagine it can just tell you if if the scene is too dark, right? Yeah, like the one that I have will, it'll beep at you, mm-hmm. as, as you learned <laughs> recently. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so yes, a lot of them are like that. They'll, they'll, they'll flash a light in the viewfinder that tells you like it's too dark, too light, or turn on the flash. Mm-hmm. You don't have to normally. But 
you know, it's that's that's typically how they do. They kind of alert you, and then you can make a decision. But most of sure. them are just point and shoot. So, does this Fuji one have a flash? Yes, it does have a flash. That's not very natural of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it like if you're shooting in the dark mode in like 1600 ISO, it'll disable the flash. It'll lock you wide open at 1.9 okay. for for the S model, and it'll like do whatever it can to like okay, if I want to. It wants to freeze motion, so like it will try not to bring the shutter speed too low, and it'll just like underexpose things if it has to, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's kind of like it knows shooting in the dark, and so it makes decisions in that way. Yeah, which I feel like a lot of these you know older film point and shoots are not as uh, maybe as intelligent or thoughtful about that shooting mode. Yeah, it's kind of cool that they've optimized it for the different things. I mean, anytime you have an auto mode, you're making some sort of trade off, and it's cool that they've kind of like they've they've aimed it at a certain thing. That's the Classica. Oh, it, you know, it kind of has that aesthetic of a Blackmagic cinema camera, like the old one, the one from 2012. Yeah, I could see that. It's it's like 50, 50 times smaller. Yeah, but, yeah, but like it's got that same look to it. Mm-hmm. Like no grip, just like a flat, uh-huh. very sleek. Yeah. How much do those things run? Uh, somewhere between $300 and $600 mm-hmm. used on eBay. Okay. So, I mean, they're... So fairly expensive, but not yeah. wildly expensive. Yeah, not wildly expensive, but sought after mm-hmm. because of because of what they can do yeah i don't think i can buy iso 1600 film <laughs> <laughs> they don't make that anymore i've been looking i i've been i mean, haven't been looking specifically for 1600 but i'm like what's the highest iso i can get well, i don't know i like main, most of the stuff it's like 800 is about as good as you're gonna get hmm. i don't think that i think iso 1600 just is so niche yeah that that's not a film stock it's that probably pretty grainy oh yeah it's definitely pretty grainy mm-hmm. maybe I don't know. That's what you're in it for, though. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Crank the grain. That's what I say. I don't say that. But since we're talking about it, I shot a roll through that Minolta Hymatic AF2. Yeah. Yeah. You showed that camera to me the other day. <laughs> it's, uh, and, uh, it's, you were, I know you were super jealous. Uh-huh. And you were like, Lucas, I got to get me one of these. I'm going to start shooting film just like you. That thing is huge. <laughs> it's so much. I had a, I had the X-T30 with me at the time. It's so much bigger than the X-T30. It is, it is not small <laughs> it's not giant like the the length and width dimension or the height the height and width dimension are maybe the same as my canon ae1 yeah maybe a little taller like it's not it's not small but it's not like heavy yeah i mean it's not enormous but it it doesn't feel like a compact little you know pocket camera yeah it was the 80s <laughs> There, People had bigger pockets back then. There are there are smaller versions of these cameras out there, and so I don't know. I'm I'm really I'm sure excited. You'll get one it. eventually. I have I have put my film in for development. I opted not to develop it myself because I knew that I was gonna I was gonna do it wrong, and then I wouldn't know if I did the did the film development wrong or if the uh, yeah if the camera was broken. Yeah, you want to test one variable at a time. And you you accused me of using this really old expired Superior film I did. 400, and yep. I didn't. I didn't use it. It's still sitting in the fridge. <laughs> so uh, take that. I have you know fought fought and won against my demons, mm-hmm. and that that film is still unused. I did actually get all of my kit. Yeah, I was in you, the mail. You just you just said that you chose to submit that role for development instead of developing for yourself, which makes it sound like you could develop a role of film yourself if you wanted to. Yeah. So when I was listening back to, to the last episode, I realized that I hadn't, I hadn't gone all in yet. Oh yeah. A lot, <laughs> so a lot has happened since the last episode. Yeah, of so, podcast. Uh, as I continue down on my film journey, I've done all the math and it's like, 
getting some, uh, like a C41 process film developed, it's like eight bucks or whatever to develop a roll. But then you have to either scan it yourself with a $300 scanner or whatever, or you have to get them to scan it in a fancier scanner, and that's usually 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. And so you're paying, you know, 18 to $20 just to get it developed and scanned, plus the $16 or $8 it costs to get the film, depending on what you shoot. I mean, at the low end, we're talking $26 for one roll of film. <laughs> that really adds up. That's a it's, lot of money. It's so, it's so expensive. But once you have all of the development stuff, I think we talked about this part before, I can't remember. It's it's like a dollar a roll because you can get you can get a like a thirty two count or twenty four count or whatever you can get you can make get your chemicals and it can develop like twenty four rolls of film or whatever and like in aggregate it comes down to like about a dollar uh, yeah. for chemical cost if you which like they expire over time like if you don't shoot like twenty rolls in a year or six months then it's going to cost you more because your chemicals are going to yeah. go out and you're going to get more chemicals but in aggregate. A dollar a roll. And I mean, plus your time. Mm-hmm. But for you, going to the camera store takes time as well. And yeah. it can also be an expensive trip for other reasons. So uh, <laughs> True. So that's that's kind of my, my thought. It's like the time I would have taken to develop the film is probably the same amount of time I would have taken to go there, drop the stuff off, and then go back again later to pick up my negatives. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, that's you know an equal amount of time. And the cost is like way, way less. Now mm-hmm. I just need to get a scanner. And someone is supposed to be sending me a scanner for free. That's pretty cool. And so I'm like, once once I locked that in, they're like, oh, yeah, that's just sitting in a box over here. I'll send you that scanner. I was like the last thing I needed. And then I bought all the chemicals and all the tools and everything. And I have like this cute little box. And it's got like all of my stuff in it and my goggles and my my, uh, Patterson tank and my little fish tank heater. I'm ready to go. So it's going to be a while before you actually do this, though, right? Because you have to shoot a roll of film. On, on a known good camera before you can actually... Right. So I'm like a few days away from seeing the pictures out of the Hymatic. Mm-hmm. And then once I confirm that that thing actually can focus and can expose, which those are the big unknowns, <laughs> they're probably all going to be out of focus. Who knows? Uh, if that works, I'm going to put the roll in the Hymatic. If it doesn't, I'm going to put it into the A1. And I'll uh, shoot another roll. And then I'll start, uh, I'll start developing my own film. But the, the scanner hasn't showed up yet. Yeah. So if the scanner never shows up... Then I'm going to have to figure something else out. Mm-hmm. You might have to buy a scanner. That's not the question. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm just in. I'm, I'm in it, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all the way in now. You're in pretty deep, <laughs> yeah. I would say. So, I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes when you actually mm-hmm. do this process. I'm super pumped about it. Yeah. I'm very excited. And I'm just, I'm dying to do, to do some development. And I just have to keep waiting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like in the modern, modern era of everything being right now, there's not much anticipation, and I feel like a lot of the, like, for instance, a lot of the excitement around Christmas is out of the anticipation of Christmas Day. And I think film photography, like Christmas, <laughs> has a lot of built-in anticipation because you have to wait. Like, you took the picture, you're not going to see that picture until you shoot the other 35 pictures and then get it developed and then get it scanned and then realize it was a terrible picture. But it'll have been so long between the two. <laughs> I'm just saying that it it uh, it builds anticipation, which then has a higher payoff than normal photography. You can listen to this podcast to learn about the magic of film photography. It's like Christmas. Christmas magic is film photography magic daniel i don't i don't know about that <laughs> you heard it here first i did i did consider that uh 
back in the day, like before digital photography, you would have to like, you should have to shoot the pictures and then you have to like get them developed and like see the picture. You could sure you could take it to a one hour photo and it was faster. Like you could see them that day still, but your the, the turnaround time for like, what did I do? How do I fix it? And how do I get better? And then do the, do the thing to get better was so much longer yeah. that it probably took way more time to get good at photography. That's probably true. Versus now it's like you take the picture, you look at the screen, you go, Oh, instant correction. And then you do it again. And so it's like people people nowadays have the opportunity to become way better at taking pictures faster than than they did before. And I think that's yeah, cool. Yeah, it's like I, I mean, if you took a, a full day, you know, like an eight hour shooting session, and just walked around somewhere with a camera and messed with the settings, you could become adept at using the camera in probably like a day. When I was in, geez some grade, I don't know, middle school, high school, whatever. My dad gave me that AE1 at that time of like, oh, you want to like learn to how to take pictures and stuff. Here's my camera and here's the manual <laughs> because you don't have any access to the internet because it doesn't, it doesn't exist or we don't have a computer or we, I don't remember when. I don't remember if we had internet at the time. And it was like, I, I'm like reading this old AE1 manual about like what aperture is. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I going to do? Like go get film and like take pictures and like the hurdle to get over of like how to learn how to use this thing and like learn how to be, a, you know, take pictures and that sort of thing was so high that I just never got into it versus like me now. I'm, 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 I'm I would have totally been into it. It would have been really, really cool, but it was just, it was too much of a hurdle. And so yeah. I think that, I think that's maybe a really nice thing about digital photography that uh, we've kind of take for, take for granted. Yeah. I think you're probably right. I don't know. I'm just a big, big film guy now, Daniel. I I can tell. Our (laughs) listeners can tell too. It's terrible. I apologize to everybody. Uh, That's that's the rest of my film update. Yeah. Yeah. Let's close the film corner. Yeah. Close it. It's not even an official corner, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like a a pillar now. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Oh, crap. (laughs) I'm sorry. All right. Anyways. So, uh, what is this other pre-show topic? Got to print mad no film. Mm, you have an extra N on the end of film too. Film, film, filming, whatever. It doesn't matter. Let's talk about Las Vegas. All right. That sounds good. <laughs> Quite the segue there. <laughs> you saw, you, you went. I and, did. And you saw the sphere. I did. I saw the sphere. So I think it, I don't know how old it is. I should have looked that up for this. This year. I think that it originally came to be. Sometime this fall before before F1, mm-hmm. but not long before. Yeah. I think it was they were finishing up in the summer or something yep. like that. Yep. And we mean uh, 2023 because people are going to be listening to this in 2024. Oh, dear. But yeah, it, it, it is definitely within the past year. I feel like it's been open for like three or four months, maybe. Yeah, something like that. And you've probably seen pictures or videos of it online. It's just the big... Big, uh, big sphere shaped yeah, so thing. It's, it's, a, it's a big sphere, mm-hmm. and the outside of it is, it's effectively a screen. Yeah. But what it is is it's uh, there are individual LEDs like a like a giant concert screen where it's yeah. not you know really small pixels. The pixels mm-hmm. are maybe a foot apart kind of thing, like not a you know really wide pixel density. But when you look at it far away, it's like sure, yeah. a giant screen. And so mm-hmm. they do. All kinds of silly stuff, like here's an eyeball or here's an emoji or yeah, whatever. they had they had a Christmas one recently where like you could see Santa's sleigh with the reindeer like flying across this landscape. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really neat. And then on the inside of the sphere 
it has a 16K resolution screen, mm-hmm. which like still, I mean, that's a, you know, whatever, 40, 70, 80, feet. I don't know, I remember how big it is. It's giant, it's giant, giant screen, mm-hmm. like bigger than an IMAX screen. And so like the pixel density is still low, but you're far enough away that it's, you know, you can't decipher the pixels. Yeah. And so it's 16,000 pixels as far as, you know, up and down. And they do shows in there. It's not. It's not the whole. I was under the impression it was the entire sphere inside, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's just like yeah, an extra you know, sensory, overwhelming right size screen. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it, it, when you're sitting in there, you're you're sitting in like theater seats, right? And it it basically fills almost your entire vision, but it's it's not behind you. Like mm-hmm. yeah, so and so you you saw a show there. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about the camera system that they use for this thing, because obviously, of course. So what? Yeah. How? What was the? What was the show like? What was? Well, so do you want to start with the with the technology side of it, or do you want to start with my experience? I kind of want to start a little bit with your experience to kind of okay. frame the technology, because yeah. like you're you're in there watching this this show, and it's like, is everything in focus, or are they using depth of field to like direct your eyes? Was it like? You're looking over here, but the thing is happening over there, and so you kind of had to know where mm-hmm. to look. Or was it like something was happening all over the place? Well, like, what it, did they do? I mean, it's a you know, it's kind of a new uh, format. I mean, in the sense that you know, we all know what regular, you know, what a regular cinema screen is like. We've seen IMAX stuff, and I mean, this is kind of like a new thing where it's much bigger. And so, I mean, you have to imagine that it's going to take some experimentation for people to figure out like, what is the right way to tell stories with this type of screen, you know? And so I don't know if the one that I saw is necessarily what everyone will do with it, but I can at least tell you what it was like for the one that I saw. Sure. So we watched this show that was, uh, I think it was about 50 minutes long and I'm not going to go way deep into the storyline of it, but it it was kind of like a sci-fi thing, but then like ultimately it was sort of like a, not a history of the earth, but kind of like a tour of the earth. And so it had a lot of it was some story mechanism to do a lot of visuals exactly. of different locations. Yeah. Yeah. And so very Cinerama. They had a lot of, it, it was, it was pretty Cinerama. Although like I would have liked for it to have been more, like I would have rather had less story because the visuals were the coolest part, but mm-hmm. they had a combination of like, you know, flying through nature scenes, time lapses in cities and then some like traditional storytelling type things of, you know, like here's a shot of a person up close, you know. So it's kind of a mix of all that. In terms of like the way it looked, I mean, I was pretty impressed at how sharp it was and just like the the overall like color depth and that sort of thing. Like I had no complaints about the screen at all in terms of that. Like I was kind of thinking you know, yeah, it's a 16K screen, but it's also really big. And so, you know, is it going to look kind of like soft focus or be kind of washed out or whatever? None of that. Like it was, it looked really good. It's those mini LEDs, man. I guess, yeah. It's the future. When when the show started and, and all like while we were coming in and sitting down and waiting, they just had like this little like squarish screen or, you know, rectangular, like normal size type screen lit up in the front. And I mean, like it was like maybe a little bit bigger than a movie theater, but it was like kind of that size. And I mean, I I, I assume this was like their intent, but it kind of made me think like, is this it? Like, I kind of feel a little bit lied to, you know, it feels, oh, yeah. feels like this is all you get. And when the show started, that was actually like, like some of the show was on that little screen. Mm-hmm. Like the first part of it was on that, you know, and I mean, it's big enough to see, but you know, it's just kind of like, okay, I'm in a movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. But then like they started getting into 
like the actual thing. And there's this moment where it just like opened up and like it went from being that little screen to being like your entire field of view. And that was that was pretty impactful. Like, awesome. That was super cool. But the show had a lot of uh, high frame rate stuff, you know, and like a lot of just like. Was it was it in like 48 or 60p? Could it, you tell? Some of it, at least some of it was. It seemed like it was because, I mean, they were showing, you know, flying through scenes and it just looked incredibly realistic. That always, whenever I watch like TV shows, like I haven't been able to watch, um, what's that one with, uh, with Killian Murphy in it? Something public. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's on Netflix. But I try to watch that show and it's in, it's in like 60 frames per second. And I, I turned it on and in like the first five minutes I clocked it and I was like, this is in 60. This is messing with my head. Mm-hmm. And I turned it off. <laughs> I think it works better on the bigger screen though because, yeah. it, I mean, it feels like you're just flying through like the Grand Canyon I or mean, whatever. I mean, I liked and like people are going to revolt. I liked the, the original Hobbit in 48. <laughs> Because of like all the, a lot of the flyover movements and mm-hmm. a lot of the action is very very smooth. Yeah, and it's I thought it was cool, but that was before I knew the one the one truth, which is twenty four, mm-hmm. which is fine. Mm-hmm. I, this I was, is cool. I was also going to say that a lot of the, at least for the show we were watching, a lot of it was uh, pretty deep focus. Mm-hmm. So I think that makes sense though. Yeah. Like if you're if you're showing a here's a space and like you're there kind mm-hmm. of thing. You want it to be able to people to be able to choose what they can lay they're looking at. Exactly. So super deep focus. And then you want it to be high frame rate so it looks like what they're seeing. And ideally if you can push that to one twenty, you should. Yeah. I don't know what they're shooting these at. Yeah. Um, I, I tried I tried I to find that information out, but it's not yeah. super, super yeah. easy to decipher. Yeah. I mean I, that's not something that I could easily tell uh, you know, from looking at it. But um yeah, there's definitely some distortion on the you know, across the whole screen, like they showed a time lapse of like an apartment building and you know, anything with lines that you know are supposed to be straight, you can see that they kind of curve around, but mm-hmm. you also expect that because the screen itself is curved. Right. Maybe it kind of blends in or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't distracting or anything, but I mean, overall super cool. It was really neat to see things in that way. And like, I felt like visually it was a notably different and better experience than a normal theater. So let's talk about let's talk about how they're how they're doing this, like how they're shooting these things. I I read a few different articles, watched some videos and stuff on like the camera and the interviews and things where they talked about the big sky camera and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the camera that they're using for the sphere is built for the sphere. And uh, because it's not like publicly available for everyone to purchase, even though they want to sell it to Hollywood for different like avenues of filmmaking, right now it's like this is their camera that they're using for this thing, and that's it. They built it specifically for this sphere. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And originally, the guy who's who's running that program, whenever he showed up of like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to shoot this? They had like 11 red cameras kind of like built around a sphere, kind of pointing <laughs> into a central point. It's ridiculous. I, I, the, the picture I have is from the Wall Street Journal, but you can, I don't know if we can link it or not into, into the show notes, but... Uh, it's a it's a little nuts. It's yeah. like <laughs> it's literally eleven red cameras with the same lens, kind of like circling around a, like a central point. And that was that was their original concept of like how are we going to do this? It looks, I mean, everything about that is just so complicated. Like you know, imagine powering up 
and dealing with 11 cameras, making sure all the settings are exactly the oh, same. And trying to sync them in post. And, yeah, once you get stitch the footage, together. you have to stitch that together into an image. It sounds terrible. Absolute mess. Okay, so they're like, we can't do this. So they went away with it. They went with a single sensor, single lens camera solution. And this, and this is completely custom, it looks like. Oh, yeah. It's definitely completely custom. It is a three-inch by three-inch sensor. That's, for those counting at home, bigger than an IMAX sensor, which is 65 millimeter, but then also taller because it's a square sensor, not a mm-hmm. um, almost square sensor. So, because that's like, what, 72, 75 millimeters, something like that for yeah, three inches? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I thought it wrote it down, but I guess I didn't. It is 75. And then the resolution of this thing is 316 megapixels. So that's like 17,000 pixels across, 17,000 pixels tall. And they're shooting this for a 16K screen. So like the sensor is built for the screen with like a little bit of room for cropping. And the lens that they put on this thing has an image circle that's three inches. So they have a three a three inch by three inch square sensor with a three inch image circle that fits perfectly oh, inside wow. okay. of the thing. And that's how they're shooting this thing. That's crazy. I mean, if you think about it, like even like that's a lot of custom hardware to make and it's also a lot of custom software because you know obviously it's you know this is a totally custom build and that's yep we don't see that yeah, too much it's purposely built for this application and it has two lens options and one is a one is a 150 degree field of view which is absolutely nuts mm-hmm. and then the other one's a 165 degree field of what's view what's the do you know what the the screen is in the in the sphere in the sphere it's uh, I mean, they, well, they they deliver at 150 for the okay. screen. Okay. So the 165 is if they wanted to add some extra stabilization, they could kind of crop in a little bit. I see. Which is why like the sensor is 17, not 16. So mm-hmm. like they have this a little bit of extra room. So they want to shoot even wider. They can have do some post stabilization. I see. So that's why they have that little extra wide kind of one. But like those are the two options. And so I like went and did the the math on these things, and that's the equivalent of like a five millimeter lens. And an 8.5 millimeter lens. <laughs> or an equivalent, that is. It's not like, yeah. we're not trying to like translate this to 35. It's it's 5 millimeter and 8.5 yeah, millimeter. That's crazy. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like the... Anyways. So, super crazy. They didn't like... Nowhere did they list like what the F-stop is for this thing. It's probably ridiculous. But, I mean, you want everything to be sharp. You want everything to be in focus. I don't think the F-stop is what you're focusing on. Yeah. And so, I imagine that... I mean, you have this enormous sensor, so hopefully, like, the f-stop just super doesn't matter. You're probably trying to shoot at f-30 or something, Mm -hmm. if you can, in Mm -hmm. order to get things actually in focus. So, I am curious to know, like, how they're lighting stuff for this and whether or not light is an issue. Yeah, I wonder that, too. It seems like whenever you're designing that lens and trying to nail that, that aperture... Which, to me, it seems like this is probably a fixed aperture situation, and then you're going to crank the ISO or... You can't add ND. Maybe they have like an ND that they can drop in front of the sensor in mm-hmm. order to to set the light. But like the, these are details that I want to know that no one's publishing information about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on the show we watched, you know, a lot of it was outdoors. I mean, mm-hmm. they were to where lighting would not have been a problem. But yeah. I mean, they, maybe they would have had ND it. But but like there you, was some indoor stuff too, though. But if you think about like if they're, they're shooting outdoors with a freaking three inch by three inch sensor. The size of a dinner plate, not really. It's little, dinner plates aren't that big. Anyway, uh, big old three, three by three sensor. And I mean, maybe you're, maybe even still, like if you're shooting like F30 or something and you're trying to get like everything in focus, it's, I mean, you're, you're going to be 
possibly fighting the light, right? And yeah. like if you're shooting at uh, 120 frames per second or 60 frames per second, you know, now you're at a one over 240 shutter speed. I don't know. It's like, I think about that Barry, was it Barry Lyndon's last stroll or something? Uh, that part, was it Park Chan Wook? No. I'm getting mixing, I'm mixing up my directors. Anyways, that movie that we talked about, like, whatever, yeah. 10 episodes ago, mm-hmm. it's, they had to like go full lights in full daylight in order to shoot this thing. And he basically did this. He's like, we're going to shoot 4K 120 for this whole movie and everything's going to be in focus and it's going to be like this surrealist 3d, whatever. And this feels like something similar to that where, you know, how, how the heck are they lighting this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. All right. Here, let me get, let me get to some, a little more, some little more insane things. So it does shoot 60 frames per second in 12 bit. And it will also shoot 120 frames per second in 10 bit, which those are some pretty good read speeds yeah. for a sensor that big. No kidding. And obviously like in order to read something that fast, it's that big. They're just dumping raw, right? Like they, they're they're pulling mm-hmm. off the sensor, and so what they're doing is that they are they can decouple the image captured, like similar to that whatever the SI was it SI one, something I'm, like that, yeah, the one for Slumdog, mm-hmm. uh, where you they're decoupling like the sensor piece the capture camera from the data processing, and apparently they can they can run a cable between these two things up to like a mile or something, <laughs> wow, which is a little nuts, yeah. But this thing is doing it's doing five hundred and five hundred gigabits per second off of the camera and the the they're like a that fiber that they're running between is like 400 gigabit or whatever for the fiber and it's it's essentially doing it's doing 50 gigabytes per second of data capture and that's that's dropping down into these like custom media mags uh, that are like built for you know acquiring data that fast and storing it and so they're 32 terabyte media mags and so they can do like i forget what it is it's like 40 minutes of footage or something silly yeah Yeah, your notes here say 17 minutes of footage okay yeah i can't read my notes and talk at the same time thank you (laughs) so it's 17 minutes of footage which is going to be 32 terabytes per car that's ridiculous (laughs) you know i was thinking about it when i was when i read this after watching the show but because they did some time lapses but I guess for a time lapse, they probably did just like take a photo, basically. Oh, yeah, sir. I'm right. sure they, they did. They weren't just recording it as video because they wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> I can't imagine how expensive this is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and think about the editing. I mean, just dealing with that much footage and all that. Mess. I mean, I don't, I don't know if if your your whatever Mac Mac Pro with its M2 Ultra can handle yeah. this. <laughs> It's crazy. You need so many, so many GPUs. Yeah, you'd need some some proxies for that. Yeah, no kidding. So it's like it's just insane data off of this thing, and crazy resolution on like the, the lens. It's just this wild custom yeah. built camera that's like one of a kind. I assume they have more than well, one. I was, yeah, I was wondering that. I wonder how many they how many exist. I am also curious how many exist. But and they're like toying with okay, how can what can we do to like make money with this thing? Are is there like doing like flyover shots for movies. Mm-hmm. This would be kind of perfect if you can shoot those in like 60 FPS or yeah. 120 and you could do some really crazy high resolution kind of flyovers. And I think that's maybe one of the things they're trying to sell Hollywood on and like trying to get them to rent this camera or mm-hmm. whatever. But yeah, cause it's pretty niche. I mean, there's only one sphere in existence right now. I don't, I mean, surely they plan on building others if it's successful. There were a lot of people there. Um, you know, and tickets aren't cheap or anything. So I'm I'm sure they're making money on what they've got, but they've also got a really expensive, uh, you know, Vegas is not cheap. Uh, you know, I'm sure the, their lease is pretty high. 
And I mean, it is, it's going to put a ceiling on what they can do with it if they only ever use it for this one thing. So you would assume they would want to use that camera for other things. Right. Yeah. It, it seems like a pretty big investment. I mean, they built this whole thing and mm-hmm. then they got this. Jeez, how much do you think this camera costs? Yeah, I know. I mean, one of a kind, self like developed purpose built yeah, camera. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't really say priceless because I'm sure they paid somebody to make it, you know, and that that had a cost. But like, yeah, I mean, it's you know, you're not going to sell these to people, so I don't know. To me, it's got to be like, I'm just guessing, but I would say somewhere between a hundred and a quarter million. Yeah, if probably for this thing at least, and yeah. like they got to make up that money, Daniel. That's mm-hmm. why your tickets are so expensive. Mm-hmm. Yep. It would be interesting to see what they do with this thing of like, we can now we can, we're going to apply it to you know, rent it out for this crazy movie or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I'm sure that uh, like James Cameron or Michael Bay would be mm-hmm. interested in doing something insane with this. Though I think they were talking about like building a case to shoot underwater with it. And like they're not quite there yet, but that's one of the goals is to do underwater stuff, which that would be. Pretty, be pretty, pretty cool. nuts. Yeah. And like James Cameron no, is. He'd, he'd be all about that. <laughs> <laughs> if, the, if the sphere people went to him and said, you know, those like weird underwater, like bottom of the ocean documentaries you did. Do you want to do that again in 16 K for our sphere stuff? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just looking for an excuse. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Like, like the man owns his own submarine. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Like, can I strap it to my sub? <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's fine. That's, I'm, I'm going to call it that. That's going to happen probably. Yeah, I think but you're right. It would, it'd be cool. Yeah. And I think this is, it's really, I like, I love like the custom built camera mm-hmm. technology whenever they do these yeah. purpose built things. So, you know, the thing we watched did have uh, some underwater shots in it. Oh, it did. Now I'm wondering if that was real or maybe, maybe the articles I read were farther behind. Maybe. Uh, and they, they finally have cracked, yeah. cracked the code. Yep. I don't know. The underwater code. Yep. The aqua just a code. Big, just, a, <laughs> just a big plexiglass box. <laughs> I mean, maybe <laughs> just wrap it in saran wrap mm-hmm. really tight. I would, I mean, I assume that they would have the, uh, the data acquisition piece, not in the water yeah, just, with, with the yeah. camera piece itself. But I mean, you could liquid cool it at that point. There you go. <laughs> I don't know what, the, I don't know what the cooling situation is for this. This camera is enormous. I don't know if you saw, there's a, there's I couldn't a really tell how big it was. If you look it up, there's pictures of this thing on a helicopter. It's bigger than a helicopter. That's not true. <laughs> But it's kind of enormous. Uh, yeah, I was wondering about that too because some of, you know they did a lot of flyover shots and like they didn't put this on a drone. So oh no, it's it's definitely on on a helicopter. Yeah, pretty cool. Inspired too. <laughs> <laughs> it's just some guy running with it over his head. <laughs> anyway, I, yeah. I think That's this neat. is it's kind of cool. Um, I've been wanting to talk about it a little bit for a while, and I thought this was a good opportunity since yeah. you, you had a chance to see the show. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I'm curious to see. You know, like a year from now, it, how, you know, how this is looking, you know, how many shows have been released Bankrupt. for it. Well, <laughs> you know, you have to wonder, right? Like, I mean, it's really popular right now, but they're going to have to keep releasing new shows for it. People are going to have to basically make movies for this thing. Yep. Because otherwise, like, you can get a lot of the cool factor of it by looking at it from the outside. Yeah. Like, seeing all the neat stuff on the outside is really fun, but that's not making them money. So no. they need people to come in and see it. You need shows to be produced for this thing. But- you know, like, are, are they going to be able to fund that? And are they going to be able to get, you know, like big directors or whoever to actually make movies for this thing? I think that's an open question. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll have to see. Yep. The the whole, like, especially seeing it at night outside just reminds me so much of, like, Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the whole thing really feels like this weird, like, it's like you're stepping into the future. I mean, when you, you see it from the outside and you're walking in. And then when you go in... 
I mean, besides the theater itself, they have this big atrium area, mm-hmm. and they've got like this hologram thing and like some robot stuff, and like it feels like a kind of like a science museum sort of deal, but like it's clear that they're trying to make it feel like the future. And it kind of does feel like the future. So I, you know, that's clearly like the vibe they're going for with this whole thing. Wild. Yeah. Okay. I don't have a segue for the next thing. Yeah. Hit, hit me with your best segue, now, Daniel. Now for something completely different. <laughs> I don't have anything. Either. All right. Just play, play the uh, the let's take a break button, and then we'll and then we'll take a break. That's a good call. We've got to work on these segues, Lucas. I don't feel like we're very professional podcasters today. There was that one episode where I just, I nailed it. Yeah. And I feel like because I can't do any better that I shouldn't try. Mm. Yeah. Lightning never strikes twice in what's, the same spot. What's it, uh, what's it called when like you're, my, that was my magnum opus. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> totally passed us by. We just really missed out on that one. Yep. And now it's just all downhill from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What's next? Okay. I want to talk. Uh, kind of maybe get a little heady here and talk about how you hold your camera. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm thinking really what this is, is that uh, everyone listening to this is probably holding their camera wrong. I mean, I don't know. It'd be, like, a, it'd be a good clickbait title though, right? Sure. Why yeah, not? Yeah. You're, you're, you're holding your camera yes, wrong. you specifically. You <laughs> out there. We see you in your red shirt sitting, sitting on your couch, holding your, holding your camera wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway. So if what kind of, I got a camera strap for Christmas. Ooh. It's, it's not that exciting. Okay. It is a camera strap that I wanted. Uh, you you shot a, a Christmas Eve service and had two cameras with you. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it might be interesting. Like, obviously, there's camera bags, which, oh boy, <laughs> we, you know. We've covered that, and I'm sure there will be more episodes where we cover yeah, more you about got, camera You got bags. an extra hour? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I don't want to talk about camera bags necessarily. I want to talk about like how, like, are you different ways that people are kind of approaching yeah. camera holding and like, like maybe advantages and disadvantages and like what are, what's the right situation? Cause a lot of these things I can imagine myself using all different types of systems sure, yeah. and it really feels like the type of situation. I agree. And I kind of wanted to, I don't know, get into a little bit of that. Yeah. And so it's good. Going to talk a little bit first about, you know, like, what are you thinking about whenever you're, you're talking about like, how am I going to strap in to my to my camera system or whatever? And like, how many cameras do I have? I don't know. And like material and that sort of thing. So I was like, to me, the first thing is is safety. Like, and not for, not for me, but for my camera. <laughs> I'm not the most uh, uh, dexterous person in the world. And so I, I, I drop things and I will absolutely drop a camera. It's not beyond me. <laughs> and so like, I feel like for me going like bare camera is never an option. Interesting. I'm not that way at all. Like I, there, there are times where I care about the safety of it. And like, if I'm holding my camera over like a steep drop off to where I would literally not be able to recover the camera, then I probably have a strap on it. But, and, and, and I remember when I first got into photography and when I first got my camera, it was like any time I used it, I wanted to have some kind of strap or something on it. Mm-hmm. And now I am not that way at all. And most of the time when I use my camera, no strap, no nothing. I just pick it up and use it. Nice. And no so fear. for me, I think my main consideration is more about like the freedom of use to okay. where like I want it to be, I want it to stay out of my way. And 
what you know if i'm hiking or something then that means i probably do want some type of camera strap because i don't want to have to hold it the whole time so like that's like where the the freedom would come from or like sometimes i'm in a situation where i know i'm going to want the camera but then i'm going to need to be able to do something else with my hands so it's like obviously i need a way to like drop the camera and have that be okay Mm -hmm. but that's more of a priority to me over like being afraid of dropping the camera I think that makes sense. Uh, the the other thing to consider maybe here that we'll we'll kind of get into is like how are you attaching to the camera and mm-hmm. like what what does that look like and are they fixed anchors or swivel anchors or whatever? Because like getting getting that core like getting your strap like wrapped around itself. So whenever I first got into doing photography, oh boy, I said it. Oh no, Daniel, cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> when I first started like taking pictures and that sort of thing, getting into cameras, I. I had just had a strap. I bought like a strap off of Amazon, which was probably a terrible strap yeah. that had no no real rigidity to it. And the seams were probably going to break and it was probably a bad idea. I mean, it worked out for a while. I had like for years. But it was just like a, a you run it through the eyelets and then like you feed the, the tail back into itself. And so it was like fixed to the camera. It was not easy to take on and off and it was yeah. just going to be on there. Yep. And I would like throw it over my shoulder sometimes to like carry it quickly but that was annoying because like it wasn't easy to adjust it was basically like a fixed length i didn't like putting it around my neck because the camera was too heavy and for me like if you're putting a camera on your neck like i, I want the camera to like stay where it is if it's got a long lens on it and mm-hmm. it starts like tilting down away from your body it's just uncomfortable you know you you would think that oh you know all can't like just get a camera strap like what does it matter like the, the, anything's fine but all these things you're describing, like that's why it matters because the the, the specific design of these things and the material it's made out of and all of that is going to affect like not just the comfort, but also the usability of it. Oh, for sure. And so for me, like my first camera strap situation, what I ended up doing was like I had the strap on it and like if I'm from A to B, I may like throw it on my shoulder real quick. But my main use was I would put my hand through the strap and I would wrap the strap around my wrist mm-hmm. and then I would hold the camera. And yeah, so like it, you basically shorten up the all the slack. Yeah, and like essentially I used a camera strap as a cuff mm-hmm. and like wrapped it around my wrist. But like the the because it didn't have like pivoting connections to the eyelets on the camera and because they weren't easy to detach, it was just like a tangled mess. Yeah. And that was how I used my camera for I think like a year or two when yeah. I first got into cameras. Yep. And I mean, you know, I think a lot of people do that when you're just getting into it and when it's really just a hobby, you know, you're not using it that much and you don't want to spend a whole lot of money on it. And, and maybe you just don't know any better. What were you doing back when you got your, your, was it a D80? Uh, I had a D40, D40. a Nikon D40. It was my first, uh, fancy camera and I did use the strap for that. Uh, but I just used the one that came with it. So it was a pretty basic, uh, as, as do most maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. And I, I think I didn't actually like learn the trick of wrapping it around my wrist. I didn't really use that. So I mostly put it around my neck. Yeah. Which I feel like around your neck, unless you have like a really good like padded strap is maybe not preferable. No. And I don't so, think so I don't know. We, and we can talk about like, why, how are you holding your strap? I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like if like around the neck for, for like my Hymatic AF2, the thing is, it hangs perfect. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, this is this is a neck strap situation. I need to get like a super adorable short strap that holds it like right at my chest, and I can just like pop up. <laughs> it would be amazing. So like, yeah. neck. I'm, I'm coming around on neck straps as far as like getting something that's not super thin. Like it's got to be thick enough to be comfortable. But if you have the right camera with a short lens, like a point and shoot, 
I feel like neck straps are great. Yeah, having a short lens is the critical part of mm-hmm. that. And the other part, I think, is it, to me, it kind of depends on you know how heavy the camera is and what you're going to be doing when you don't have the camera in your hands. Yeah. So, like, there could be times where having the camera on your chest is annoying, like, when you're not using it. But if it's a statement piece, like if it's a, <laughs> it's like a, piece it's of a Q3, I mean, <laughs> oh, you want that right there. Because <laughs> then you're going to see people when they try to steal it from mm, you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> okay, so like oh, there's a neck option, which has never been something that I've been super into mm-hmm. until like I started getting into film photography and now I'm going to become a neck strap person. Oh my gosh. And that's going to be a whole, it's, it's terrible, Daniel. I, I wish one of us could stop me. <laughs> Neither of us can. It's an unstoppable force. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the other thing, like you can go, you can go shoulder. Yeah, like crossbody. No, no, like just like hang it on your shoulder. Oh, and then like okay. it's like you, that's Ooh, how you carry I like, it. I don't then, like that. Oh no. boy, it just it just slips off. Yeah, right? it just, just falls off. There are like the not, not cool. So the strap that I got for Christmas uh, was is that peak? It's the peak design, obviously. Uh, I don't think it's like the short the the strap light. I think it's just like the regular strap not the leash okay and so it's like an inch inch and a half thick and it has rubber on one side mm-hmm. and not rubber on the other and so like if you are going to put it on your shoulder it won't like yeah. slide off so that's much. how my peak design one is i don't i maybe i have the same one who knows know. yeah i think i think that's kind of nice but generally speaking like the on one shoulder it just doesn't really stay on maybe i'm not maybe i just don't have thick enough shoulders i don't, I don't think it stays on very well and i don't think that it, it's not great if you want to be able to leave the strap on and use the camera. Like, you know, like it's kind of a weird position, I guess, to like pull the camera up to your face when it's on one shoulder. Sure. Yeah, um, I would agree. So then like in the same situation of like it's just a normal strap, you can go crossbody with it. Yeah. You can just like do a crossbody. And I think that kind of works. But and then you're like like swiveling the strap mm-hmm. up to, in order to like pick it up and but take But what pictures. I do like about that is that when you're not using the camera, it hangs down at your side. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like you have the area in front of you clear. I also think that works better if you have a longer lens on the camera. Right. So, and that, and that kind of brings the question, the concept of how are you attaching to the camera? Mm-hmm. And so it's obviously like there's the eyelets that are on it, but a lot of these strap solutions come with a, a tripod base connection which i always find annoying because i'm like well what if i want to put a, a tripod plate on there but like the the peak design capture clip and other solutions sometimes have like a little spot to like thread a strap through so you can yeah. use it for both and so i have like put one of those little anchor eyelets on my peak design capture clip in order to be able to use the base plate as an anchor point but then also use it as a the capture clip method yeah and so uh but like if you're if you have like a really long lens on there Hanging it from one eyelet and from the tripod base may get you into a lens pointing down, like a more stable, like hung configuration compared to if you were trying to put it on both eyelets and then it's kind of trying to teeter from the top yeah, and, and turn up. I think so too. Yeah. And it may feel stronger too. It kind of depends on how the camera is designed. Like the ca- the cameras that have the little circular eyelet and then they have like a, like a split metal ring. Mm-hmm. I hate that style. Oh yeah. Like, Jeez. XT30 is like that. Mm-hmm. And I hate those because I'm always afraid that that thing's going to break or that the strap's going to fall out of it or mm-hmm. whatever. And so with, with one of those, I'd much rather have a base plate uh, solution. Yeah, I, I've never fully trusted the putting the anchor into the into the tripod for like the primary mount location. I always, some of those will have like, a, like an extra tie around to the eyelet as like a safety catch. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. As far as 
attaching to the camera. Like I'm never okay with just base plate, but usually it's like one eyelid or both, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like most people, when we're look, you're looking at someone's camera, they're going to have those little anchors hanging off of it. Yeah, peak, like the little, little peak, peak design, design anchor mm-hmm. things. Yeah. It's just so easy because then you, you get the quick release. Like the problem with your original strap that you used was you said like you have to feed it through the eyelet and then feed it back through the strap. And I mean, you can't remove that very easily. And those peak design things are great because you can pop the strap off if you don't want it on there. It feels like those little anchors have become ubiquitous mm-hmm. in the photography community. And I was looking to see like what alternates are out there. I mean, there's people who are still hard connecting to their camera without having a quick release. And it looks like there's maybe a few different options out there. You know, those, um, like, uh, remember playing guitar with the, those pins that could like push in. For yeah. A quick, strap lock. Yeah. Strap mm-hmm. lock. You can get those for your camera, something similar, which I would feel a little uneasy about how those connect. Cause you could definitely like hit that button and that thing would go, but you can get those. And there's also ones that use just like a straight up buckle. Like a like a plastic buckle, yeah, like a plastic buckle mm. as a quick detach option. Which, about that, yeah, I'm not super into that either. It's kind of big, kind of bulky. Because that's the other thing. Like when you don't have the strap on there, you want something that's not like this huge thing hanging off your camera. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's where the peak design things are good because it's very small. Yeah, for me, as far as connecting any sort of strapping system to your camera, the peak design. Uh, anchors and eyelets are the clear winner. Yeah, as far as like yeah, they, they lock options. in really securely. You can remove them easily, but you're never going to accidentally pop that thing out. And I mean, yeah, pretty much like the only thing that you could ever be worried about with those is the little tiny thread breaking. Sure. And like that, and those fray, like if you see any sort of different, different color, like if you have a black one and you see red, it's time to replace them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They do kind of have a built in wear indicator, mm-hmm. which is good. They do. Yeah. So that's great. And like check your eyelets, right? That's, yeah. all, that's always the thing. It's like just check them, check them periodically. Does that lock you into Peak Design straps? I don't know if it does or not. I mean, most Peak Design straps have the anchor piece kind of built in. Mm-hmm. There are third-party straps that are compatible with, but I can't remember if you can just buy those like base oh. anchors to use with other straps. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I know. I'll, I'll have to look that up later. But I guess that would be the big detractor as far as like I like the Peak Design option the most, but... If it's like not the strap that you want, like you want yeah. some sort of fancy leather or something, or you want to use a, a money maker, like maybe you, you can't use the peak design. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've like beat the different ways to do like standard strap to death. What about material? Like what 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 do you prefer your straps be made out of? Well, the peak design one that I normally use is kinda of, I think it's like a seatbelt type material. Mm-hmm. And I like that. So I like a I I don't like the rope style straps because to me, if I'm using a strap, like I want it to be really comfortable when I'm wearing it. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like the rope would kind of like bite into my shoulder a little bit, especially with the heavier lens. So I don't think I'd like that. I like the the seatbelt material because it's flexible, but mm-hmm. it's wide enough to kind of distribute that force. Right. Um, and that's probably also my the issue that I, the issue that I would have with some like leather is I want the strap to not get in my way and not feel like stiff and you know not flexible. I do think that leather is a good material for strap systems just because of its durability. It you do durable. want something that's going to hold up. You can even, you mentioned like seatbelt material. You actually buy old seatbelts that have been repurposed as camera straps, which <laughs> yeah, is kind of cool. Sure My biggest issue is, is always the width. I love the way the little rope straps look, but that, that point load like on your neck or on mm-hmm. your shoulder or whatever is probably going to be not 
great. Yeah, unless your camera is really lightweight. And but even still, like it, it feels like it wears on you over time. Mm-hmm. Versus those wider straps are more comfortable. Yeah, like my Canon E1 is heavier than my Highmatic AF2, but the strap on the A1 is like an inch and a half, and the one on the AF2 is like a centimeter. And it is more tiresome to hang the AF2 around my neck than it is the AE1. Yeah, interesting. it's just purely because of that weight distribution, Mm -hmm. which is why I need to get another strap for my uh, Hymatic camera. (laughs) Anyway, so like it's picking the the right material. Like you want it to be like leather or canvas or nylon or like sailcloth or something. And so it's going to hold up. And especially if you're wearing like heavy, heavy gear, that kind of thing. Yeah. But all right. So like we're connecting with anchors. Like maybe you're using a strap. What are other ways? Like I kind of want to get into your shooting situation and talking about like how how are you managing multiple cameras mm-hmm. and like the other ways of because like obviously strap right like those that's a that's a go to method. But what are other things that you can do that aren't necessarily yeah. a camera strap? Yeah, well, and for me, like this is not a common problem for me. But recently, I was shooting, uh, you know, some Christmas Eve events. And, you know, it's kind of like the typical wedding photographer thing where I, I know I'm going to want some wide shots and some tight shots. I don't want to have to constantly be changing lenses. I happen to have two Fuji cameras. And so it's like, well, I'm just going to use both of these cameras and I'll put the Tamron 17 to 70 on my X-T30 and have that be my wide shooter. And then I'll put either the 50 to 140 or the Viltrox uh, 75 1.2 on the X-H2S and use that for tight shots. And so I've got two cameras. I want to be able to carry both of them. And for me, that was a new challenge. I haven't ever had to do that before. And so the way I approached it was the X-H2S with the long lens, I just used my Peak Design strap, which I think is, it may be the leash. I don't know. The leash and the strap are very similar, but um, I used one of those things and ran that one crossbody, which worked out well for me because like, especially with the 50 to 140, it's a really long lens. And it hung pretty well at my side. And so I could just like let that hang down at my right side when I wasn't using it and it stayed out of the way. And then for the X-T30, uh, had the Tamron 17 to 70 on it, which is a annoyingly long, uh, physically long lens. Um, for that, I used a Peak Design capture clip on my belt on the left side. So if I wasn't holding either camera, I had the X-H2S hanging off of a strap, uh, you know, like down like by my right hip and the X-T30 uh, on my belt on the left side. And so it's kind of a nice balanced setup. It seems like a pretty good hybrid approach where it's like strap on one side, clip on the other, kind mm-hmm. of managing two cameras. It seems like people who are shooting events are like sometimes they're mixing and matching, but the different ways that you can approach this is like you can do a clip system to like clip your camera in. You can do a harness system where it's like you have a like a literal harness that has like two cameras hanging mm-hmm. or you can do like a, I guess it, what's it called? A, uh, like a, not a holster, but like a one-sided harness basically or yeah. a sling, I guess mm-hmm. is the word I'm looking for where it's similar to a strap, but it is, it is purely meant to be like a crossbody system that has yep. a, like a slide. So that whenever you pick up the camera, it slides all the way up. Yep. yep. And I feel like depending upon what you're shooting, if you need to like go overhead or you need more freedom of movement, maybe you're going to prefer like a clip solution over a, a harness or a strap solution. Yeah, maybe so. And I was, I was diving into these clip options and like there's, it seems like, you know, the leading options are obviously like the capture clip from peak design, which people find people will, uh, 
shy away from because of its orientation. Like if you put this thing on, if you put it on like a backpack strap, the camera locks from top to bottom to yeah. like slide in. But if you put it on your belt, it's sideways. That's what, so it, like, yeah, that's how it was for me. And so maybe that's like a little weird as far as like how am I orientating the lens and like how easy is mm-hmm. it to get out and is there any concern about it sliding out? Yeah. And then they, but they also make this like fabric piece where you can like put the, it's like a, it's like a two inch wide piece of fabric that flips over your belt or over a waist strap or whatever. And then you, you basically clamp the, the capture clip to it so you can have it in a vertical position. And you kind of like have it hanging a little lower than your belt if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would probably do that next time just because it was like, I wasn't really worried about falling out. I mean, for one thing, like if I broke that Tamron 17 to 70, maybe be more of a blessing than a curse. <laughs> but for me, it, it's, so, I mean, I honestly though, wasn't super worried about that setup. It was my cheaper camera and, you know, a lens that I just don't like quite as much. Uh, and that was part of it. But honestly, the most annoying aspect of it was that it was just a little bit hard to line up and get in. There were a couple of times where I was trying to clip it back on and it took me like a few tries to line it up perfectly and get it to lock in. And it would have been nicer probably to be able to drop it in from the top. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And so but like if you're doing that to like get it into a down position, like hanging off your belt. I, I've had those screws get a little a little loose sometimes. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I think the trick here is to put thread lock mm-hmm. on your on your capture clip screws. Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. So yeah. that's that's my that's my main mm-hmm. advice for capture clip users. I had mine really tight because I was using it on a reinforced belt, mm-hmm. and I could bear like it took me a while to get the screws to actually lock on well enough, and so I like really cranked them down. And I think that because it had so much tension on it, I think that actually probably helped it hold in a little bit. Okay. But also throughout the day, I definitely checked them periodically to make sure they weren't loosening up. I like the capture clip for its its versatility. The Peak Design uh, sling bag that I have has straps on the side of it specifically for you to mount a capture clip to. Mm-hmm. And I really like for me having the sling bag to like have my lenses as a as like a go to changing location for lenses, and then yeah. I can like clip my camera to it as, sure. like, as a quick like yeah. set aside kind of thing. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I I will say like as we talk about the capture clip. And some of these other solutions, I do really like this as an option, especially if you're in a situation where you're using two cameras and you think you're going to be using one more than the other. So for me, with my shooting, the camera that I thought I was going to be using most was my tight, uh, you know, XH2S with the tighter lens on it. And so I had that on the strap because I feel like that gives me more flexibility and like I'm holding it. And so it's easy. The clip, though, I feel like really holds the camera securely at your side or on your you know, backpack strap or however you have it. And so I feel like if that camera is most of the time going to be on the clip and not in your hands, I do kind of prefer that over a strap because I feel like it's not swinging around as much. It's not getting in the way. And I think that's a benefit to that approach. I think that is, that is one of the reasons that people will, will favor towards a clip system, whether it's like clipping to your chest or clipping on your belt. Another option out there is the spider holster. Did you look at this thing? I, I did look at that thing. It looks ridiculous. It's in it like it looks almost like a gun holster as far as it, like it has this padding that swings down and it has this um like metal attachment mm-hmm. system and like you you buckle in like you're wearing this thing. You're not just like attaching it to your belt. Yeah. And it 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 supports the camera with a lens pointing backwards and the body of the camera down. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And that's the only way that it works. And like you see this guy using it in their picture and he's like 
And he's like Clint Eastwood down here with his hand, like fingers just, you know, wiggling right whip this thing out. And and like some people really like these because they are like just stable and the camera's there and it goes in the one way. Mm-hmm. And you can either like it basically sits into this. Like if you imagine a, a pin and uh, like a metal slide where you just slot it in. Yeah. You can choose to lock that or not lock that. And so if That's you're shooting an event, you're not worried people like grabbing your camera or you're not like going to like do a bunch of jumping up and down. You can just like pick it up and set mm-hmm. it into this this holster, like a holster, like shink, shink, and you're, you're taking it in and out. It could be good for long lenses too, because with that, even with mine, where I had it on my belt with the X-T30 and that 17 to 70, I noticed that if I like knelt down on the ground, like mm-hmm. if I wanted to take a low shot, the camera lens, like oh, the, yeah. the end of the lens was like an inch from the ground. And that and that's, that 17 to 70 will uh, slowly zoom itself out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to worry about that a little bit. Like if I had had a longer lens or if I had had the lens hood on it, mm-hmm. I would have been bonking that thing on the ground like oh, crazy. Geez, so having terrible. it point backwards might have been better. Good reason to have a lens hood on there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this this seems pretty cool. I think I read a review on the spider holster and the guy was like, I used two of them because I can, like dual wield my cameras. <laughs> but like sometimes I'll have to do a different solution if I'm going to be in a situation where there's narrow doorways because these things don't really like give one way or the other. I had that problem with mine. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, you don't, you're, you're suddenly wider than you're used to being. Yep. And, you know, oh, I don't fit down that aisle or I don't fit between those people as well. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's the trade-off. Like a clip system is fixed to you. Whereas the strap system, like you can kind of move, maneuver the cameras in and out, yep. but they're, now they're swinging around. <laughs> Yep. I feel like a lot of like dual camera, like wedding photographers and that sort of thing are using a harness. And I think like the, the, you know, the more well-known ones are like the, like the hold fast uh, moneymaker where it's like this leather like strap system. And then it's like, literally it's like harnesses and like you have two things hanging down they're connected to the tripod plates and you just have, you look like, I don't know. A wedding photographer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) those, those things are not cheap and you know, it's like, very fancy looking. <laughs> they are very fancy looking. Like your your dress camera harness. There was I don't remember if it's it's Holdfast or if it was Black Rabbit or if it was somebody else, but they make a what they call a, a lens quiver. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the harness itself, which is I mean, like it's like you're putting on a vest of leather straps, and then you have these two ha- cameras hanging down, and like those leashes can then um, they have like rings on them so they can slide up and down the harness when mm-hmm. you're picking them up. But that that strap system has more rings on it, and you can mount this lens quiver in front of you or behind you, so that you can use it as a quiver for your lenses. That's but crazy. The review I watched for it, he was like, "Let me explain to you what a quiver is: archery." And I'm like, "Come on, man, <laughs> don't don't do this right now." Uh, I don't know about and that. And so he explained what quivers were, and then he was like, "And now look what's in my quiver." And he had like a Leica Q2. And then a bunch of other stuff. Like, here's my iPad. Here's my phone. Here's some pens. And I'm like, what are we doing right now? I thought you were trying to sell me a thing to, like, take my lenses in and out really fast because I'm a super cool wedding photographer. Uh, no, it's just it's just like another bag. And he's like, and you clip it to your harness. It's pretty much ridiculous. I will, I will say, like, just as a very quick aside, I mean, I haven't done as much event photography as some people. And I'm not a wedding photographer. But I do think that. If you're in a situation where you're trying to switch between like five different lenses, you're probably doing it wrong. Yep. Like, like you have the two cameras where you can have two lenses on it. Maybe you have a third lens that gives you some different thing, but like 
it's really easy to get too distracted with switching between lenses yep. and you're probably going to miss shots if yep. you're trying to do all that. So that products like that make me a little nervous in that I think they kind of reinforce bad behaviors. Yeah, to me, it's it's if you're, if you're doing an event, if you can get away with two zooms, two bodies, two zooms, and you're set, mm-hmm. maybe. And like, if you're going to add a third lens, like adding a third body might be tough. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where you'd but, carry it. Yeah, I mean, you could like clip it on your chest and then like have your, I don't know, yeah. like maybe you have a harness and like the harness has like, you can put a capture clip on the chest and mm-hmm. then you can have the two things on the side. But having like the one lens in like this little pouch off to the side that you can easily swip swap, yeah. maybe that's the solution. Maybe but so. you're right. Like, yeah. Because I was minimize lens changes. I was using the 75 1.2 a lot just because of the wide aperture. Now, shooting in a dark room, and I was getting much better shots at that wide aperture just mm-hmm. because I could get more light. But it was like I was switching my XH2S between that and the 50 to 140 for more reach sometimes, like pretty infrequently. Like I switched probably twice the whole day. Uh, you know, I switched to the 50 140 for a while and then back to the 75, and that was it. Uh, and then the other camera was just on the 17 to 70 the whole time. But I just, I've fallen into that trap before where I've showed up at an event with four lenses and I've spent more time thinking about, oh, which lens should I use now? And, you know, and if, it's like I'm, I'm there playing with my camera instead of capturing the event. Yeah. And like, and that's all, that's all event stuff, right? I mean, if you're, if you're like going to go, like go for a hike or something and your goal is like take a bunch of pictures, I mean, that's a whole different solution. You're sure. probably bringing a bag and this sort of thing. Yeah. Sure. Which kind of makes me want to talk a little bit about, my main solution, like I've talked about how I want to go with a, you know, maybe like a neck strap for some of these other cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes if I'm going with like just one camera and one lens and I want to go really minimal, I'll do a strap, which is one of the reasons why I like I was gifted this strap for Christmas is like, it's, it's easy. You can cross body it, you can neck it or whatever. And it's kind of versatile, but a little more comfortable than like the leash that I have. Mm-hmm. But I would say most of the time, I'm using a crossbody bag, like something that's small and easy, and I have one camera and two lenses in it, and I have the the cuff. I have the Peak Design cuff, because and I'll just I'll put it on my wrist, and like if I'm gonna switch between cameras, I'll just like unclip it and clip it on, or I'll clip the camera off, leave the cuff on, and put the camera in my bag. Yeah, and I like, like that cuff a lot. It has a little magnet in it, so mm-hmm. it actually holds the end of the uh, end of the cuff to yeah. your wrist. Yeah, you can kind of like wrap it around and like mm-hmm. leave it on your wrist if you need to. Yeah. So I would say like using the cuff has been my main method of camera body attachment is, and that's it. It's like, I'm going to have my little bag with me. And then when I'm going to shoot, I'm going to pull the thing out and I'm going to have the cuff on. And that's, that's essentially it. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable approach. I don't use my cuff as much anymore just because most of the times when I would use it, I just use the camera without anything, like without a, without any sort of strap system, but I like the cuff because it's pretty uh, unobtrusive. Yeah, that's pretty good. And then we talked a lot about like the capture clip, but that's my main. Like if I'm going backpacking, I'll do and I'll I'll clip it to my mm-hmm. to my strap and just wear the wear the camera on my chest and that kind of thing instead of trying to stuff everything into my into my backpack. Yeah, well, I like that too because then the camera is right there. So if you want to take a picture, you're not like, hey, everybody, let's like stop so I can pull this out of my bag. And you know, it's just it's right there. You can get to it easily. But when you're not using it, it's not swinging around, getting in your way, and all that. Yeah. So I don't. Is it? Do we talk about basically everything here? Like, like we talked about kind of like harnesses and and you know wearing it at your hip and like maybe the detraction of not being able to like lift the camera and so you're kind of tied down, but it works as a sling. When like using a strap might be good. When using a cuff might be good. And for me, it's like 
a cuff is good if I'm using a bag and a strap is good if I'm not using a bag. And maybe mm-hmm. like that's the difference. Uh, but anything else we want to talk about as far as like how you're connecting or how you're like using your well, What do you think of those, uh, like the micro clutch and like those things where it's basically a strap that's like tight along the side of the camera and you just like thread your fingers through it. Yeah, you? I guess that's a, that's a, that's a really good, good one that we haven't ever covered yet. I know my, my dad was really into the, the body grip stuff. He never really wanted to use a strap because it was, it was confining, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a camera on strap on your body and you're trying to take a picture of like this thing over, like you're trying to move the camera away from your body or overhead or whatever, yeah. you maybe have to like take it off and mm-hmm. it's, it's annoying. Yep. And so what he would do, he had a, a, a grip, uh, where it was like this cover thing that went over and you like slide your hand into it and it wraps around your hand, and like holds your camera to your hand. And I hate those things. <laughs> they're just, I just, I can't, they're restrictive and weird and like basically locking your hand onto the grip. And I'm rarely wanting to use the camera where I'm holding it correctly, <laughs> which is maybe go back to see the first part of this discussion where I <laughs> said that I might drop it. <laughs> yep. Yep. That explains a lot. I mean, I am frequently like on my X-T3 hitting the shutter button with my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to explain how. <laughs> I will say the one time I think those things are useful is if for some reason your camera's really heavy. Sure. So we both sometimes, you know, run a wireless camera for doing live broadcast stuff. And the camera that we're using for that right now is a Sony A7 III with a cage and with a Teradek and a battery on top yep. of it. And so that's like a really heavy camera. Mm-hmm. And the A7 III does not have a very substantial grip. And the first time, the very first time we used that setup, I used it just you know just playing with nothing and my hand was hurting at the end of the night because i was trying to hold that thing up and so i happened to have one of those peak design uh, i think it's the clutch it's not the micro clutch but it's like the you can fit like three or four fingers through it and i put that on there and it just instantly made it better yeah. because i could relax my right hand grip but still have something holding some of that weight up so i think that's the one case where i would use one of those yeah that's 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 no joke i did some we did some trip out to like Gatlinburg a little while back and I was doing what I basically talked about. It's like, I have a sling and I have my camera and I had the the cuff and like kind of walking around. I didn't want to like keep taking my camera in and out of my bag. Strap would have probably been the right solution for this situation, but I was doing what I normally do. And so I'm just kind of like holding the camera in my right hand most of the day mm-hmm. and yeah, that gets really tiring because like usually if I have the cuff on, I'm holding the camera. I'm not actually like gripping it because I'm lazy. Yeah. I'm more of like balancing it on two fingers and kind of just <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like holding it. Right. It's cuffed and it's fine. And, but like my, my, min, my ring finger and my middle finger were just so tired and sore at the end of the day from yep. just like holding this stupid thing. Mm-hmm. And like the, the hand trap would have been perfect for that. It yeah. would have, you know, you can have a little, Loosen up a little bit, but you have it a little more secure. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the, the theme of all this is there's a time and place for all these things. Right. And I think even just kind of understanding what's out there and being open to like changing up your setup, depending on what you're doing, I think is really valuable. Like the, the thing that I was talking about, my capture clip and the strap was something I've never done before, but it worked out really well for what I was doing. And I think that you know, maybe if I did it again, I would try and learn from what I did and make some small tweaks to the setup. But it's like, that's not, that's not what I do most of the time. Cause I don't normally need two cameras and I'm not normally in that situation, but for that situation, that was the right choice. And that's kind of the theme of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that absolutely covers it. And with that said, 
I want you to tell me what the situation is where you would use this uh, nice cam carry harness Olympus system that I put in the show notes here. If you can open up this link. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what I'm looking at here is... I mean, this looks like this person's wearing like a small version of a bulletproof vest (laughs) and it's just strapped on and there's a camera mounted on the front of it. And I mean, that's like a, it's not a utility belt, but it's like a, it's like a combat vest for photography. Yep. It it has a similar mounting situation to the spider thing, Yeah, but instead it's this, this front back vest solution that you like cinch yourself into and then you can like (laughs) shrink and put the camera like on your chest. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm kind of past the point of judging people for how they do this because maybe there's a situation that makes sense. But. I mean, maybe there is, Daniel. I'm thinking like if you got if you're wearing a moneymaker and you got a camera on the left and a camera on the right and a quiver at your waist and you need a third camera, maybe this is the solution because your hips are taken up. So then you gotta like put this bad boy right here. You could probably put <laughs> capture clips on the shoulder pieces for that. You could put two more cameras on this thing. <laughs> I don't know about that. I just don't know. But five, five bodies. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the easy rig for video that where, you know, it's like this this huge, that's the thing that you, like, you strap it on and you yep. have like a, like a scorpion. You have this big thing over your head that with a with a cable that comes down and holds the camera. And I love making fun of that thing, but I can also understand why you would use it. Oh, and for sure. I'm sure this is the same. I'm sure there's a reason for it. There's like, there's so many weird, silly looking like attachment solutions of people trying to solve the problem of like for this very specific situation, how am I going to hold my camera? Mm-hmm. And I know I think I feel like every single one of these things has a time and a place and it's uh it's cool to know like what your options are and yeah. kind of optimizing for, for what those things are. Yeah, I think so too. Cool. I, yeah. I did. I, I, I do have one last thing though. I did want to know what you think of this uh, clever supply co IOE camera strap where they've got, these two lengths, you can get it in a short or a medium length. And, you know, it kind of seems like what you would do with your film camera where you say, you know, or you're like a Q3 where you want it on your chest as a, as a display piece. But I'm looking at this picture, this camera strap, and this guy's wearing two of them. And he's got the short one and the medium one. And he's got two cameras hanging there in front of him. What do you think about that? I mean, you, you do you, right? Like maybe you need to, I'm thinking in this situation, Maybe you got like a Canon Auto Boy, and then you have like a like a Fuji Natura, which are two very different price point cameras. And uh, maybe one of them has has some like Ilford in it. Like you're shooting black and white in one. The other one maybe you're shooting like Porta four hundred. You know, nice color stock. And uh, you want to be able to use both and have them easily accessible, but you need your hands free. And then here's the situation, right? You got a short strap, you got a long strap, and you just wear them both around your neck. <laughs> and so like we said i guess there's a, a strap for every situation yep that's it for the show today thanks for joining us and if you liked it tell a friend so they can check it out too you can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com and you can find us on twitter at camera gear pod we'll be back with more next week